Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Parsha Lab. This is Rabbi David Foreman. I'm here this week with Daniel Lowenstein, one of our writers. We're going to be looking at Parshat Chukat together. And Daniel, this is your first podcast with us, is it not? It is, and I am very excited to be joining. Oh good, I'm very excited to have you. You can just think of the audience as sort of the spectators in the Roman Colosseum of podcasts, if you will ready to tear us apart for any possible mistake. I hope that puts you at ease, Daniel. Um, Riley Foreman, does that make us the gladiators? Oh, it makes us the poor animals who have a, a terrible fate at the end of the show. Anyway, Daniel, with that, let's jump in. I hear that you have prepared something to share with us or with me, and I am eager to see uh, what you might have come up with. So take it away. Thank you so much. So uh, as you mentioned, the Parsha we'll be discussing today is Parshat Chukat. And the opening of Parshat Chukat is about the Para Aduma, the red heifer, which is used in purifying someone who came in contact with a dead body. So one very basic question right at the beginning is, why a red heifer? And by that you mean... Why uh, red? Why red? Uh, I mean, the whole procedure seems uh, a little bit on the... I don't know if I would say bizarre, but it's it's certainly got all sorts of quirks in it, right? It's it's this uh, red heifer turned to ash, essentially, and then the ashes are kind of mixed together, and there's this red thread that's thrown in, and these ashes are sprinkled, and it makes the person who was tame, who was impure, pure, and it makes the sprinkler impure. So there's a lot of strange qualities about this. You want to focus on the redness of the heifer. And why is that's where I wanted to start. And I wanted to know if you had any thoughts about that. You know, I've kind of wondered about that. You know, one thing just sort of jumps out at me. Don't know if it is significant, but the redness of the para is referred to as para aduma spelled aleph, dalad, mem, hey. And part of this really uh, specific procedure, which is done with the para aduma, uh, involves the sprinkling of the blood of the heifer. If you look at the word for blood, first of all, blood, of course, is red. And if you look at the word for red there, it's dama, right? Or it's blood. Dama just happens to borrow three out of four of the letters in order of aduma, right? So you have a red heifer of which it's dam uh, is sprinkled, leaving only the aleph kind of dangling out there as the difference between the redness of the heifer and the blood of the heifer. So I offer that without any explanation. Not sure if that's the word you were going, but just thought I'd throw it out there. Roy Foreman, I love that you paid attention to the uh, spelling of the word aduma and noticed also the connection between the, the redness of the blood and the spelling of the word dam or dama and adama and aduma, excuse me. I sort of just tipped my hand there for a second. But also the way you noticed that the spelling of aduma is also spelled with the same letters as the word adama which means mm. earth. Um, that is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. You've got earth in there. Para aduma is vowelized as aduma, but could just easily spread without vowels as a heifer of the earth. And it's not like they're not connected at all because the, the reddish-brown color of the heifer actually does approximate the reddish-brown color of soil. So there's an interesting possibility there. Are you suggesting, just to interrupt you, that the color of soil and the color of blood is similar? I'm suggesting that the color of the heifer is similar to the color of blood and similar to the color of soil. Because it is kind of interesting if you think about it, we do think of blood as red, but if you prick your arm, 
you'll notice that it's really a very dark crimson that almost approximates a, a, a brownish or at least a very dark burgundy red, which kind of is close in, in some ways to the color of earth. And interesting that the word aduman adama and earth and blood should be so close when their pigmentation is close. So yeah, kind of interesting. There's one more thing that, that strikes me as interesting that I wanted to get your opinion about. If you look in Bamidbar, chapter 19, verse 9, this is what it says, Vasaf Ishtahor, so a pure person should gather at Efer Hapara, the ash of the red heifer that's been burned, and he should put it aside outside of the camp, in a pure place. And it will be for the congregation of the children of Israel for a safekeeping. It will be waters of Nida, and it is a chatat. So that phrase, nida, it's an interesting phrase, and I, I wasn't sure what to make of it when I first saw it. What do you, what do you think, Rabbi Foreman? What, is it, what does it say to you? It's certainly a rather striking piece of language. Generally, when we think of Nida, we think of a woman who is uh, ritually unclean by virtue of menstruation. I guess you've got redness there with the blood of menstruation, perhaps, if you want to continue the redness theme. Um, it's certainly not the simple meaning of the phrase, but what the simple meaning of the phrase is is, is kind of up in the air. Definitely agree. And I, I have a, something I'd like to suggest, but, you know, anybody's guess, really. But, um, Roy Foreman, do you know the first time that we encounter the word nida or some similar form and similar meaning of the word nida? The first time we ever, oh, would it be, oh, I know where you're going now. <laughs> clever, clever, clever. If I'm going to guess your train of thought, the first time we ever have that language of nida is going to go back to Kai and the punishment that he gets as he's navanad tiyabarats. He is a wanderer without a place, right? As right. If he's lonely, exactly right. The, the word "nud" in that context means someone who is cast out, exiled, right. condemned to wander. Which maybe was where the idea of Nida comes from, because there's something that's lonely about her, or cut off while she's in an impure state. Much like Cain is cut off uh, in a sense, and that he's he's wandering and cut off from society. And I see where you're going now with ideas of blood and with ground, right? Because it was Cain right before we hear what you have with uh, with Cain right before that is that God exclaims to Cain, Cursed are you from the ground that has opened your mouth to take in the blood of your brother from your hand. So there's that image of blood mixed with ground, blood coming into the ground that maybe somehow comes out in this para aduma, which has the language of aduma or adama, and you're not quite sure which, and just so happens to have that element of navanadtiabarats of separation involved with these waters of da. And then, by the way, Daniel, if you're going in that direction, that would explain the phrase lemenida chatati. This offering, strangely, has the quality of a chatat, which, by the way, Daniel, is also unusual, because you wouldn't think of an offering which is just there to make someone pure as a sin offering. But if you think about it in terms of coming back from Cain and Hevel, that again echoes with the language that God uses to Cain, specifically when he says, cursed are you from the ground, let's open your mouth to take the blood of your brother from your hands. What God says to him is, right before that, is la petach chatat rovets. There's that language. But that sin lies crouching. I didn't even notice that. Of course, that 
the title of my book, right? But that's <laughs> that that sense of chatat also goes straight back to Cain, the sin perhaps of of murder, and of course Cain is that first story of death at the hands of another human being, and here somehow this animal is being used to somehow give us a way of coping with death. So Rabbi Foreman, just to briefly review what we just discussed, we noticed that the spelling of the word aduma, red, is also the same spelling as the word adama, earth. And we also noticed that the waters or the ash and water mixed together that's used in the sprinkling to purify the person is referred to as me nida. And we then noticed that the same elements of nida or nad and adama and blood and redness all show up also in the story of Cain and Abel, of Cain and Hevel, when Cain murders his brother and God tells Cain that the blood of your brother is screaming to me from the Adama, from the earth. And therefore, his curse will be that he will be Navana, that he will be forced to live permanently in exile and as a wanderer. Mm -hmm. And that theme of exile, by the way, is also present here, not just in the Meinida, but in the fact that the Ishtahor, this pure person who takes the ashes of the para, it says in the same verse, Vinyach mi chutzlamachana, makom tahor, is to place the ashes outside the camp in a pure place. And uh, that, again, sort of uh, seems to conjure up that image of exile for which the story of, of Cain and Abel comes Right. There's to mind. definitely a lot of themes of exile and, and separateness involved in this whole narrative of the Para Aduma. Mm -hmm. Now, there's, there's one more piece that I want to introduce, which I think will sort of lead us into a, a theory. And Roy Foreman, I'm going to actually rely on you for this part, because you have a very uh, elaborate theory of the sins that happen in the beginning of Bereshit, in the beginning of Genesis, centered on the idea of, of Da'at, and Da'at as a kind of creator knowledge or creator perspective. And I believe that you discuss in a few different places about how we can see that in Cain. So could you just uh, summarize for us what exactly the action of Cain has to do with Da'at and the Eitzha Da'at? Daniel, um, my views on this have, have sort of um, developed and morphed over the years. But more recently, I've been seeing this in terms of the notion of knowing good and evil uh, with the tree is is kind of sort of affecting the next generation. And what I mean by that is that good and evil are the words that a creator uses to describe the system that they've created. It's specifically the way that a creator or master of the system evaluates his world. Hence, when God evaluates his world, God sees that it's good, God sees that it's good. Later, when he decides to destroy the world, he sees that it's evil and he goes and destroys it. So good and evil are these words associated with the master of a system, God, declaring whether something should exist or not exist within the system. As such, these are not words for human beings because we are not outside the system, we're inside the system, to use my monopoly analogy. We're not Parker Brothers, the creator of the game, we're Little Hat and Little Shoe who go around the board. And Little Hat and Little Shoe are not allowed to make proclamations about the way things should be on the board. You get to decide whether you're building a house on Park Place, you don't get to decide whether or not when you roll doubles, you get to go to free park and collect a million dollars and win the game. Right. And so when, when Adam and Eve ate from the tree, what they essentially were doing was they were deciding to step outside of the rules that were given to them. And they decided that they wanted to think like a creator as well. And they wanted to be able to declare what is good and what is bad. 
Exactly. Uh, in the next generation, this leads to murder, right? And murder is something which you'd be horrified of doing if you realize your little hat, little shoe. Little hat, little shoe don't get to make those ultimate decisions about which piece stays on the board and which piece doesn't stay on the board. It's not a little hat, little shoe decision. But if you think that you're the master, then you think you get to make those decisions and murder becomes at least thinkable once you've eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So where would you take that, Daniel? So here's my theory, and please be honest and let me know what you think. My Daniel, theory, I'm always ruthlessly honest. Um, when a person encounters a dead body, what kind of effect does that have on them psychologically? I would venture to say that if, if um, you are a little hat or little shoe, sort of faithfully sticking to your role, and murder is unthinkable, but you hang out around death all the time, you see people die. So it could be that seeing death will make you appreciate life all the more, but it could also be that when you encounter death, it sort of makes death a little bit less taboo, a little bit less scary, right? Maybe if you encounter death, then you can think, oh, death happens in the world. It's not such a big deal. And that's kind of interesting because if you think about that, that is truly the way it does work with us human beings, right? normally we have this aversion to death. Death spooks us out, which is why all the scary movies are all about death. It's about mm -hmm. graveyards and about skulls and haunted houses really exploit our sense of fear of death, which is a natural part of being human and maybe the way God wants it to be because little hat and little shoes should have an aversion to death. Death means you're going off the board and the whole point of being little hat and little shoe is that you're living on the board. You should be scared of going off the board. But as you suggest... Nothing can inure you to a reality that you should be scared of like constant exposure can. Constant exposure changes things. If you're on the battlefield, you can get numb to death. And by the way, maybe you even see the beginnings of that with Cain and Abel, because even though Cain has only experienced one death and you would expect him to be shocked, one of, in fact, the most shocking things as a reader in reading the story of Cain and Abel is how unshocked Cain is. When God confronts him and says, what have you done? Right. Uh, Cain isn't distraught. Blood. He isn't uh, weeping and, and horrified by what he did. He just says, leave me alone. Hashem rachianochi, am I my brother's keeper? What's awful about that is not just his dismissal of responsibility for his brother, but just the casual sense in which he's assimilated this terrible reality. The first death in the history of mankind just rolls off his back like it's he uh, lost a squash tournament and, you know, what the heck, it's not my problem, let's move on. Uh, so and you're suggesting that maybe at some level Paradumas is trying to guard us against that. It's almost exactly. like the anti-Cain experience. What I'm suggesting is that the next step off the wagon, let's say, after exposure to death is being inured to death and then feeling like potentially you could be the arbiter of death and not feel like it's a big deal. So in order to protect us from making that, that jump, we have this ceremony of the Paraduma. And what, I, what I'm suggesting is that the Paraduma is filled with all these symbols of Hevel, right? If you think about it, Paraduma, we, number one, have the reference to Adama. What we do with the Paraduma is we turn it into ash. And then we take that ash, ash that's like dirt or dust that symbolizes Hevel. Well, just let me slow you down here. When Daniel, fair reader, says... Uh, or listener, says uh, that was talking about Hevel here. He is referring obliquely, if I'm not mistaken, not just to the name Hevel, but to the meaning of the word. The word Hevel means that which dissipates, that which is fragile, 
as Hevel himself is. Hevel just dies and literally goes up in a puff of steam. Strange to have a brother named Puff of Steam. But that's what happens to poor Hevel. He's fragile, he dies, and you see the fragility of life and how easily it evaporates from the quick loss of Hevel, which is encapsulated in his name. So Daniel's saying, you've got this para, which is a very sturdy thing. We turn it into ash, showing its fragility. We take the ash and mix it with water, so the ash completely disappears. So there's really nothing left. And then, Daniel? And then, when we collect this water-ash solution, we call it meinida. Water to be stayed away from? So what I want to suggest is actually it's a warning. These are the waters that represent how you can become exiled. These are the waters that represent the first murder, the first death, and the first So it's almost like we're throwing led. cold water on you. Yeah, actually, that's a, that's a great way to, to talk about it. We're alerting you to the fact that you are on this slippery slope towards viewing life in a very callous way. So in other words, just your contact with the dead, the fact that you are an undertaker, the fact that you are seeing all these bodies, it can have a deleterious effect on you. It can take away the natural horror that little hat, little shoe feels towards death. So what we do is we try to shock you with the sprinkling of this death water, this da, which could also mean stay away water, which also, because that sense of nida to stay away, like the Ibn Ezra says, but also nida going all the way back to Cain and Hevel, going all the way back to the fragility of Hevel that is distilled down into the essence of these ashes, that's distilled down into this water. And we sprinkle with you this fragility to remind you that life is fragile and hence, by implication, precious, not to be trifled with, that it can easily be gone and therefore treat death with the sense of reverence and horror and natural aversion, which you naturally ought to. It's kind of rebalancing that system. Very fascinating, Daniel. Thank you. By the way, Daniel, yes. if I could just add something more, that one of the paradoxes of the paraduma is that the ashes make the person who was tame, i.e. the person who came into contact with the dead, tahor, but the person who sprinkles it becomes tame, becomes impure. And maybe the answer to that, along the lines of your thinking, is this. When you've come into contact with the dead, that has the deleterious effect of desensitizing you to death, which is dangerous for you, little shoe. And therefore, the best we can do for you is to sort of pour the water of the haunted house upon you, splash cold water on you to try to re-shock you with the fragility of life. That will bring you back from the brink which is the sense of casualness that you might be experiencing with death and bring you back to normalcy. The tragedy is, or the irony is, is that the person who has not been exposed to death, right. Right, the regular little shoe, who then comes in so much as comes into contact with these haunted waters, himself becomes haunted with them and becomes spooked by death and therefore himself attains a certain kind of tuma because for him just coming into contact with that cold water or that sense that, oh my God, life really is fragile in that way, when you're just sort of coming along and going through your life is enough to precipitate a kind of death crisis for you, which can then pull you into a kind of tuma as well. Fascinating. Um, and it feels like life as it should be 
right, is that little hat, little shoe kind of have to pretend there's no edge of the board or have to not get near to the edge of the board naturally, but they go about their way and their focus is on Park Place and their focus is on Tennessee Avenue, even though there's this joke at the heart of it all, which is that everybody dies and it's a journey and no one knows where it goes and it's horrifying and it's scary, and but that's life and you somehow have to live your life. And there are certain things that can throw you off kilter. Contact with the dead, those that are outside the board, throws you off kilter. But for someone who hasn't even contacted with the dead, just contact with the waters that are intended to remedy you, right, throws you off kilter in a way. Makes you no longer thinking about buying a house on Tennessee Avenue, right? And somehow you need a period of readjustment for your life as well. So Rabbi Foreman, what are we to make of this theory in terms of our lives today? Right, we don't have uh, these these waters, and I think culturally, where we're located nowadays, they might not even really mean all that much to us. You know, we don't uh, have the same frame of reference to to symbolically see Hevel, both in the character sense and in the the um, breath of uh, you know puff of smoke sense. How how are we to guard ourselves against this possibility? Um, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, what is the what is the Para Aduma tell us in a world in which there is no Para Aduma. I mean, according to what you're arguing, it feels to me like the Torah is sensitizing us to this dance that we have to play with death in the world, which is is that we're all going to die. It's the most ubiquitous event in the world. It's you know they make the joke about death and taxes, the only thing that is certain. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, despite that, somehow, anytime we experience death, it's like we can never see it coming. And it just strikes us as horrible and horrifying. It might not, in fact, be horrifying, right? But we are engineered as human beings to regard it as horrifying. For all we know, the dead are on the other side having a grand time and thinking, oh, my gosh, can't believe we're so scared of this. But uh, but the fact is, is that human beings are supposed to find it horrifying, even if it's wonderful on the other side, because that's not our job to be on the other side. And somehow we have got to be able to encounter death, which happens all the time, and still maintain the normal sense of horror and the normal sense of staying away and not to become inured. And, and Paraduma says that you got to be careful about that and that when you come into contact with death, you've got to somehow get yourself back into real life by recovering your ability to be shocked at death. And I, I remember, you know, personally, when I've had encounters with family members who've experienced loss or close friends that have experienced loss. I just remember, you know, walking to a car after going there and just having this terrible feeling of disorientation. Like, how do I go back to work? How do I live in a world in which life really is so fragile and this could just happen? And it's just like, it feels like I live in a fake world because I don't think about death all the time and I don't think about that possibility, but it's really so real and anybody could just take get taken off the board at any time because that's just the way life is. But somehow there's that feeling of disorientation that doesn't let you play the game when you get hung up there and you've just got to go back and almost willfully immerse yourself into the game of routine and be able to recover your horror for death because that's the only way you can go about life. So it just strikes me as the Torah being gentle with us and helping us maintain the delicate dance of what it means to be little hat, little shoe in the world. Um, and I, I just want to add a personal level from my end that I think this conversation is actually making me think a lot about 
modern media and the, at least the way I consume it personally and how sort of ubiquitous death is in so many different forms what we're seeing mm -hmm. here with this paradigma process and with the me nida warning is that it's important to take steps to sensitize ourselves like you were saying to recover the horror that may not be so simple. Yeah, maybe and, one know. of the takeaways is stay away from uh, gory crime movies. There are things in life that are meant to shock you, right? NPR had a thing the other day about the ubiquity of curse words in society. And they said, you know, if you're using curse words for shock value, it doesn't work because once you use them five times, they don't shock you anymore. And it's the same thing if you use death to sell tickets at the movies. It doesn't work after a certain point, doesn't shock you anymore. But what you do have done is something deleterious and painful and difficult and tragic for the humans that watch the movies, which is you've taken away the natural sensitivity to death, which impairs our our ability to live full lives. Um, there's something about the horror of death, which is uh, which is part of living. And something that needs to be preserved. And something needs to be preserved. Yep. So, uh, Daniel, this has been fantastic. I really need to tell you that. I, I love it. You give me so much nachas, you writers. You're the best. We, it was a great hanging out with all of you. This and, was a real honor see. for me to be able to come onto the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you for being had and, uh, and for sharing your thoughts with, uh, with, with all of our listeners and with me. It's, uh, it's really a thrill at Aleph Beta to be able to work with a group of, of dedicated folks that are thinking and pondering life and uh, coming up with wonderful richness in Torah. So I consider myself privileged. So just before I sign off, Daniel, I do want to remind all of you guys out there that you can subscribe to us. You can just click a handy dandy subscribe button. You can do it on your favorite podcast app on your phone. doesn't matter where you do it. As long as you do it, you will have us every week without even batting an eyelash. And uh, you can follow along because it's a great journey. So this is Rabbi David Foreman for Daniel Lowenstein and the rest of us here at Aleph Beta Central saying so long. We'll see you next week. Have a very good Shabbos. Bye-bye.